0: Some of us might remember a comedian that immigrated to the United States from the former Soviet Union. His name is Yakov Smirnov. Some of us remember him. He was hilarious in part because he had this unmistakable strong Russian accent. He was extremely popular in nightclubs, television, and movies during the 80s, and since 1993, he has consistently performed at his own 2,000-seat comedic theater in Branson, Missouri. Get this, he has an earned PhD, an earned doctorate from Pepperdine University. And he's also been a college professor at Missouri State University and Dury University where he teaches a course in the business department called the Business of Laughter. Mr. Smirnoff made himself famous through using word plays to contrast life here to life as he had been accustomed to under the former Soviet Union he had all these comedic routines that ended with a statement what a country what a country Uh, that statement was a reference to how great he found life here in the US compared to the suffocating existence he had experienced under communism in the USSR one of his routines in particular illustrated some of the more dramatic changes he experienced here he said that one of the first things he loved most about the United States was our grocery stores Smirnoff said I will never forget walking down one of the aisles and seeing powdered milk powdered milk the label said just add water and you get milk and then on another aisle there was powdered orange juice powdered orange juice and it said just add water and you get orange juice and then on another aisle there was baby powder and I thought to myself what a country what a country (laughs) most changes probably aren't that dramatic but societal changes do happen and since the onset of this coronavirus changes are happening now at turbo speed we're almost dizzy from all the changes the question is not Are things going to change? But the better question is, how much are things going to change? Because nothing remains constant except change. Things are constantly changing. Consider some of the changes from the happy days in the 1950s to the beginning part of this century. This is on the note sheet. In the 50s, the emphasis was on cash, now, credit cards. In the 50s, it was savings now spending in the 50s delayed gratification now instant gratification in the 50s there were absolutes now not so much no absolutes in the 50s there was a sense of certainty now there is ambivalence in the 50s there was investing now there's leveraging in the 50s there was the neighborhood now there's image in the 50s there was a strong middle class now there's class warfare In the 50s, there were exports, and now imports from China. In the 50s, there was mom and dad, the nuclear family. And now there are single parents. In the 50s, there were press conferences. Now there are photo opportunities. In the 50s, there was achievement, and now fame and celebrity status. In the 50s, there was a sense of commitment, and now divorce, bankruptcy, and I might add student loan forgiveness. In the 50s, it was made in the USA, and now it's outsourcing. In the 50s, it was about we, and now it's about me. Things have changed dramatically. Notice the principle not all change is improvement. There are good changes and bad changes, and bad change is not an improvement. But without change, there can be no improvement. One more time not all change is improvement. But, without change, there can be no improvement. We all need to change something, and to help facilitate that change, there are four principles in this Genesis text that addresses personal change. The first two we have already commented on. Let me though just touch on those before we move on. Notice number one, God sometimes uses a crisis to initiate change, a crisis. Genesis 32, verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Verse 25. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, meaning that this man, his wrestling opponent, could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Jacob was engaged in a serious wrestling match. He's grappling. His opponent was an unusual man. Most commentators and theologians believe that this was a pre-Bethlehem Jesus manifesting himself in the form of an angel. Throughout the Old Testament, angels sometimes manifested themselves and did so as men, meaning as males. In theological language, Jesus manifesting himself in the Old Testament centuries before his birth at Bethlehem in the form of an angel-like being that is called a Christophany. A Christophany. So this is probably Jesus, essentially, before his birth at Bethlehem manifesting himself in a male angelic form. That wrestling match constituted a crisis, a personal crisis. And that crisis contributed to Jacob's changing. Second, we must be committed to changing. Committed. Verse 26, And he, this is this Christophany, said, Let me go for the day breaks. This opponent wanted to stop this wrestling match. It had been going for hours. But he, Jacob, said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob was determined to continue to struggle in this grappling match until he got something from God. This mass lasted all night. Jacob was persistent because he wanted God to bless him. He wanted change. Change isn't something we dabble at. Change is something we must be committed to. There has to be a total buy-in or that change doesn't happen. Number three starts this morning's message. Notice, we should confess our need to change. We should confess our need to change. Verse 27, So he, this is this Christophany, Jesus manifesting himself pre bethlehem in an angelic form, said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. The reason that this pre-incarnate, pre-Bethlehem Messianic Jesus asked Jacob what his name was was not because he didn't know his name. He did know his name. He asked him his name because he wanted Jacob to confess to, meaning to admit to, who he was. One more time. He asked Jacob his name because he wanted Jacob to confess to, to admit to, just who he was and that was important. Remember from last time, we said the name Jacob meant supplanter, supplanter, and to supplant means to usurp someone's position. To usurp someone's position and or take someone's possessions through scheming and treachery. Remember the genealogical order. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the three most famous patriarchs in Jewish history. The word patriarch means father. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were famous Jewish fathers, similar to our founding fathers. Critical men to the Jewish people. In a technical sense, Jews as a people group started at Abraham. Abraham and Sarah in old age had a son named Isaac. Isaac then married Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah had twin sons named Esau and Jacob Jacob was second in the birth order and the reason he was named Jacob was because he grabbed hold of Esau's heel as he was being born I mean Esau is born just seconds we assume seconds before Jacob and as Esau's coming out Jacob has hold of his heel and that's the reason he's named Jacob That's interesting because according to the book of Genesis, Jacob continued to grab onto others' positions and others' possessions. One of the first examples of that was the time he grabbed possession of his brother's birthright. Notice Genesis 25, starting at verse 29. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau, his brother, came from the field, and he was weary verse 30 and Esau said to Jacob please feed me with that same red stew for I am weary therefore his name was called Edom verse 31 but Jacob said sell me your birthright as of this day verse 32 and Esau said look I'm about to die so what is this birthright to me Verse 33, then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Verse 34, and Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is what happened. Esau was an avid hunter. And he had returned from a rigorous hunting trip in the fields and wilderness. And he was exhausted. Literally, he was starving. He happened to meet Jacob, and Jacob had just made some stew. So he begged Jacob to give him some of that stew so he wouldn't die from starvation. Jacob agreed to do that, but under one condition. There was a condition attached to this. And that was that he would exchange his stew for Jacob's birthright that's a huge exchange remember the firstborn child was scheduled to receive the father's birthright and that was Esau's because Esau was the firstborn he was born just seconds before Jacob so he was considered the firstborn this birthright was a common ancient Middle Eastern practice we now call primogeniture primogeniture was the custom of the firstborn child in some cultures only the firstborn male child not the female It was, though, the custom that the firstborn child inherited the father's entire estate to the exclusion of the other children. So get this. Jacob negotiated a deal with his starving brother to take his birthright from him. Since he was starving, Esau was desperate, so he accepted that exchange and regretted it. Pardon me, this is an editorial comment, but Jacob was a complete jerk. Esau was his twin brother. Fraternal, not identical twins, but still twins. Jacob did this to his biological twin brother. I have three brothers and as children. We sometimes disagreed and sometimes fought. And for the record, I never started those altercations. (laughs) I was such a good child. Okay, sometimes. But even now, if one of my brothers has a legitimate need and I'm made aware of that need, then I'm going to help him. That's not something theoretical or hypothetical because that's happened multiple times. That's just something brothers do for one another. I would never, ever consider using my brother's unfortunate situation to my advantage. I'm not going to profit from his loss. That's utterly unthinkable to me. But that was Jacob. The text reads that Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. Some people actually see this as a form of bartering. No, this isn't bartering. Jacob essentially stole his brother's birthright. But there's more. To compound his sin even more, Jacob then stole his father's blessing that would also belong to his older brother Esau. Notice Genesis 27. I wish we could, but we don't have enough time to read the entire chapter, so let me set this up. Jacob and his mother Rebekah collaborated together to deceive Jacob's father Isaac into giving him the blessing that belonged to his older brother Esau. Now Isaac's favorite seemed to be Esau. Jacob, though, was a mama's boy. Esau was not a good man and his future descendants were evil people but that's beside the point. Esau was out on a hunting trip an excursion, hunting, so Rebekah wanted to take advantage of that time and she had Jacob find and wear some of his brother's clothes so he dressed like Esau. Esau was a hairy man and Jacob was not so she put hair from goats onto Jacob's hands and forearms and around his neck we assume she also made him smell as though he'd come from the wild and then she prepared a special meal masquerading as esau jacob brought this meal to his father isaac isaac's eyesight was so diminished that he was basically blind he couldn't see he recognized the voice as being from jacob but then isaac felt his hairy hands and 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 his neck and he It felt the same as Esau's hands and neck. Jacob deceived his father. And Isaac blessed Jacob thinking he was Esau. Jacob stole his brother's blessing. Notice verse 30. Now it happened. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father. I mean this is close. He just left. That Isaac his brother came in from his honey. Verse 31 He had also made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, Notice, let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me. He's wanting that blessing that is his as the firstborn. Verse 32 And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? So he said, I am your son. Your firstborn, Esau. Verse 33. Then Isaac, hearing that, trembled exceedingly. I mean, Isaac is disturbed. This is upsetting to him. And said, Who? Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came. And I have blessed him. And indeed, he shall be blessed. Verse 34. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. I mean, he's freaking out that this has happened. And said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. Verse 35. But he, his father Isaac, said, Your brother, your brother, your brother Jacob came with deceit and has taken away your blessing." Verse 36, And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. This is incredible to me. At this juncture, Jacob was a piece of human garbage. But if that's not bad enough, there's even more after this because Jacob then proceeded to steal his father-in-law's flocks and herds. So Jacob was a thief, a cheater, a trickster, and a deceiver. Up to this point in time, he was not someone I would have befriended. No one appreciates a deceiver and a cheater because we cannot trust them. In modern times, one of the most recent cases of that Aside from the current administration and the media, is the now disqualified—did I say that? Now disqualified and lifetime banned cyclist Lance Armstrong. I know something about cycling, something—not much—because uh, for a period of time, I logged some serious mileage on a road bike. I've Climbed every mountain peak in the Bay Area and rode centuries. Our oldest son, Drew, though, used to be a biking enthusiast. He's now, he resides uh, in Iowa. Iowa's flat, there are no mountains. And uh, so he's into CrossFit, that's what he does. But he's extremely knowledgeable about cycling. After Lance's abbreviated uh, comeback from retirement, Drew actually took me to see him race in a tour of California. I mean, he was an amazing athlete. So, we have discussed the subject together at length. Lance argued that he had been drug trusted more than 600 times, more than any other professional athlete, and that number might be accurate. But it has long been the near unanimous opinion among other professional cyclists and the media that he used performance enhancing drugs. Now, I and others admired his courageous fight against testicular cancer. He overcame that disease and his miraculous return to cycling. So I wanted to give Lance the benefit of the doubt. But our son Drew wouldn't. Our son continued to argue that in his words, Lance was dirty. That Lance, he said, was probably the best of all time at avoiding detection. Turned out he was right in that assessment. Lance won the prestigious Tour de France or Tour de France, I don't know, a record seven times. Amazing. I saw a lot of those races. And he repeatedly denied, denied, and denied again and again that he never used steroids. He never used HGH, human growth hormone. He never did blood doping. He never used EPO. He never did that. His denials were so strong that he even sued people that dared accuse him of doing those things his high-paid team of attorneys sued such a large number of his accusers that now Lance doesn't even know who all he actually sued throughout a 14 year period Lance manipulated the system and bullied and bribed people that had inside information on his drug usage in an attempt to convince them to shut up and he almost got away with it almost After much investigation in 2012, the U.S. anti-doping organization concluded that Armstrong and his U.S. Postal Service cycling team had, quote, ran the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping program that sport has ever seen. That's a huge statement. Some of us remember that Oprah interviewed Lance. And in that interview, he admitted to cheating. He confessed he had been Jacob-esque, and he had lied and deceived his closest friends and millions more that had so respected him. He was a thief, a cheater, a trickster, and a deceiver, just as Jacob was. He lost all of his sponsors immediately. He lost an estimated $150 million in earnings. Lance Armstrong went from a big-time hero to an absolute zero because no one appreciates a cheater. I need to interject this footnote. If I ever, ever preach a good sermon sometime, understand, I am not using performance-enhancing drugs. Okay, I'm not. I'm not. I swear I'm clean. Okay, just want to point that out to you. Okay, Just, just checking if you know. In ancient times, someone's name, someone described and matched his character. It did in Jacob's case. Someone's name acted as a label. Now don't miss this. This pre-Bethlehem angelic man, Jesus, asked him his name. And in announcing to him that his name was Jacob, it was an act of self-admission. Jacob was admitting to being something that he was now ashamed of. In admitting to the nature of his name he was acknowledging a definite need to change. In order to change we must first admit there is a need to change. We must stop making excuses and stop shifting the blame to other people and situations and stop rationalizing okay okay it might be my fault some I admit I'm not perfect but he's mostly to blame, or she's the real problem, or he he caused it, he did it first, what was I supposed to do? Before we are capable of changing, we must first be intellectually honest and admit there is a need to change. It might be a need to change from being a gossip, a change from not being able to be counted on, a change from overeating, a change from being anxious and worried all the time, a change from being a chronic procrastinator. A change from being depressed. A change from getting upset at stuff that doesn't matter that much. A change in friends. Because our friends and associations help determine who we are and what we do. Remember this principle the spiritual gravitational principle. Spiritual gravitational principle. It's easier for someone else to pull us down. Than it is for us to pull someone else up. From a moral, ethical, relational, and spiritual perspective, it's easier to pull someone else down than it is to pull someone else up. An example of that: It is common knowledge that uh, I I mess with Hopi all the time. That's what I do. It's part of being married. You do that to your mate, and uh, it, she's she's now ju- she just ignores me. But anyway, so uh, I mean, it, she says it all the time, "You're so weird." I said, "Was I weird when you married me?" No. See what you did to me. That's what happened. I just felt you <laughs> It used to be, if I'm on the floor and I'm doing some stretching exercises, and I'm finished, I would extend my hand out uh, and, and say, Hopi, help, help me up." And she did attempt to do that once, but not after that. Now she just stands there and shakes her head no, and walks off. Now why would she do that? Why would she refuse to help me? I'm her maid. That doesn't seem like a loving gesture. She doesn't even attempt to help me because she knows I'm messing around and she understands that if she tries to pull me up to where she is, I am purposely going to pull her down to where I am. She can't compete against the combination of my strength and gravitation. So she doesn't want to play that game. Sometimes she's just not a fun person. I don't understand. (laughs) The spiritual parallel to that example is that our friends and our associations can pull us down to where we ought not to be easier than we can pull them up to where we both ought to be. That's the reason 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 reads, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. I have endless stories of how people close to us have influenced us for the wrong. So we have to be extremely careful about who our friends and associations are sometimes that means there needs to be a change we might have to do the hard thing and tell that person I'm sorry but this friendship is unhealthy for me it's toxic or tell someone we've been dating "Um, I'm sorry there's no future in this for us change cannot happen until we acknowledge a need to change it might be a change from being in debt up to our eyeballs a change from being undisciplined, a change from being rude and insensitive to people, a change from spiritual laziness, a change from being out of shape. In our previous congregation in California before moving here, we had five different congregants who each had lost in excess of 100 pounds. One of them lost 176 pounds. That's almost an entire person. But each of them had to first admit there was a problem. In some cases it was an eating problem. But there was an obesity problem. And admitting to that problem and agreeing to change required them to first smash their pride and humble themselves. Because pride doesn't change people. First Peter 5, verse 5, this is familiar. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble it requires a sense of humility to admit to a problem and to confess a weakness or dysfunction or some sin but that's a good thing because if we do that according to this then God can extend to us the grace we need to change one more time the verse reads God gives grace to who the humble not the proud the humble in this context grace is that energizing dynamic force from God that can enable us to both be and do what God wants us to both be and do but notice that this verse also states that God resists the proud meaning as long as we are prideful and stubborn in that pridefulness and refuse to admit a need to change then God is going to be in direct opposition against us. Understand something, people. We need God on our side, not on our back. So we need to humble ourselves enough to admit that we have a problem or we have an area that needs to be changed. Some people want to protect their personal and private business at all cost. And I'm not suggesting a full and public disclosure that contains embarrassing details it's not a biblical approach but i do recommend that we first admit to god admit to ourselves and also i suggest admit to at least one other person that can hold us accountable admit to them that there was an area and or areas in us that needs to change i'm going through some significant changes now at this moment and I've shared those changes with people so they can ask me about them how's it going number four the fourth principle is we should cooperate with God in creating and sustaining change we should cooperate with God in creating and sustaining change first 28 from Genesis 32 and he this angelic form this Christophany said your name shall no longer be called Jacob but Israel for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed notice the moment Jacob began admitting what he was he's the supplanter the deceiver the trickster the thief the liar the moment he admitted what he was and began to cooperate with God then and only then did he start to change the first thing God did in facilitating this change was to change his name from Jacob to Israel and notice the name Israel means he strives with God that is a reference to that all night wrestling match he just had the name Israel was then applied to Jacob's descendants Remember, Jacob had 12 sons. Those sons became heads of 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes were then called the 12 tribes of Israel. And the members of those ancient 12 tribes were called Israelites. And his descendants were called the children of Israel and the house of Israel. Jacob, though, was cooperative. He didn't protest that he didn't want a name change. He didn't say, this is is my birth name. I don't want to change it. He didn't do that. He didn't argue that he actually preferred the name Jacob to Israel. No. He accepted his name being changed from Jacob to Israel. That's called cooperation. Verse 29. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name. Meaning this Christophany. Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? It's interesting that this angelic form of this pre-Bethlehem, Jesus would not identify himself. But notice, and he blessed him there. So this person blessed Jacob. Jacob changed, and as a result, God blessed him and named an entire nation and people group after him. In ancient times, it was the nation Israel and the Israelites, and now it's the modern state of Israel and Israelis. Israel is a blessed nation. I'm curious, how many in this room have been to Israel? Anyone? Oh boy. Several, okay. I don't get out much, so uh, I haven't been. Um, I I will go at some point. I'm not sure when. Um, Probably after Jesus returns, I'll go. Anyway, um, the modern nation of Israel is the only Jewish majority state in existence. It has a uh, total population of just more than 9 million and some 6 million are Jewish people. It is only the 153rd largest nation out of almost 200 existing nations but it the, has the 41st largest economy. Its economy is larger than all of its neighboring countries combined. It has the highest standard of living in the entire Middle East and one of the world's longest life expectancies, 82.5 years. Outside of the US, it has the highest concentration of high-tech and startup companies. It is one of the foremost countries in the invention of new technologies. It has the best intelligence on earth and and plus there was an outstanding military presence. It is the third most educated nation in existence and I am told, I read, its coffee is so good Starbucks wasn't even able to break into the market. So there you go. Israel is a blessed nation and it is also a much much persecuted nation. No nation on earth is hated more than Israel. No nation on earth is threatened more than Israel. So now more than ever, Christians, evangelicals, should be pro-Israel. Per the Abrahamic covenant, that is the biblical position. That doesn't mean we agree to all. Israel does. Not at all. But the Jewish people are still God's covenant people. The point is, God blessed Jacob. Because he changed from the scheming, deceiver, and trickster he used to be to become the father of a great and blessed nation. And then, through that special nation, the Messiah and Savior, Jesus, was born. The practical application is that not unlike Jacob, God wants to bless us if we would just change to become and do what he wants. Verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. So Jacob named the location of this intense struggle he had had, Peniel, and the name Peniel means the face of God. At some point, each of us are going to face God. But in order to prepare ourselves to face God, we need to first face ourselves. We need to be transparent. We need to be introspective. And then enact those changes that would please him. Verse 31. Just as he crossed over Pinuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Jacob had a permanent limp as a result of the situation. And that limp represented his decision to change. Verse 32. Therefore to this day, That doesn't mean, therefore, to the present, now, no. Therefore, to the time that Moses authored this book. Remember, Moses authored the Pentateuch, first five books of the Old Testament, and that included Genesis. No, to that time. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he, this Christophany, this Messianic man, Jesus, in an angelic form, touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. This verse mentions that as a result of Jacob's hip dislocation during that grappling match, the muscle that is on the hip joint shrank or atrophied. Atrophied means to waste away through a lack of nutrition or usage. The primary muscle, now there are medical people in this room, and I am subject to correction after the service, I know that, so feel free to do that if I have got this mistaken. The primary muscle that is most responsible to secure the femur bone to the hip joint is called the piriformis muscle. The piriformis muscle. The important sciatic nerve runs through this piriformis muscle, so I have read. And some of us have had sciatica, and it's extremely painful. So if this injury to Jacob partially severed or bruised the sciatic nerve then the piriformis muscle would have shrank or atrophied some and that is probably what happened to Jacob during that match and that would have disabled him the rest of his life and the piriformis muscles inside that circle on that anatomical chart there and uh, that's probably what happened that it shrunk or atrophied because of the injury he incurred during the match because the injury to Jacob caused this particular muscle to shrink and become useless it is said ancient Israelites up to the time of Moses and this would have been more than two and a half centuries after Jacob the Israelites up to the time of Moses in order to remember Jacob's struggle those Israelites did not eat the corresponding part of an animal's hindquarters that's how the ancient Israelites honored Jacob and honored what he did to get God's blessing The fact Jacob acquired this lifelong limp reminded him of two important lessons. Don't miss this. Two lessons. One, it reminded him that he should depend on God and not his own strength. He should depend on God and not his own strength. The hip is connected to the thigh. And the thigh muscles are some of the strongest muscles in the human body. That means God touched Jacob at the point of his greatest strength. And as Jacob continued to limp throughout his life, that acted as a reminder to depend on God and not his own strength. Each painful step he took was a reminder that he needed God. Reading this account should remind us that we must depend on God and not on our own strength to help us change. Personal willpower is not enough. People, we need God. God sometimes permits us to find ourselves in situations where we have no one to turn to other than Him. And that's a good thing. If all we have is God, we have enough. The second lesson that this limp reminded Jacob of was it is never God's solution to run from a problem. It is never God's solution to run from a problem. The cartoon character Charlie Brown said... There's no problem so big that I can't run from it. The no- that is the normal human reaction to our weaknesses and problems. To run from them. To be in denial of them. To get out of that situation. That means if we're bashful and introvertish in a relational sense, then we tend to avoid social functions. That's running from a problem. If we have anger issues and refuse to go to counseling or anger management classes, that's running from a problem. It's interesting that throughout Genesis, Jacob constantly ran from problems. God crippled Jacob so he literally couldn't run. And that inability to run acted as a mental reminder to resist the temptation to run from personal problems. Running doesn't solve personal problems. Because if the particular problem is related to us, then it is where we are. We bring it with us. Don't run from problems. I was basically forced to cooperate with God about a career change. Some of you have heard this. I've shared some of this. Probably most have not. I was attending Laterno College and then Laterno University majoring in engineering. At the time, it was the only Christian university that specialized in engineering and technology. Um, I, I was raised in a pastor's home, so I was considered a PK, pastor's kid. In our case, it also meant poor kid. And uh, I didn't want to be poor, so I heard engineers made good money, so I think I'll be an engineer. Um, so um, I, I was there, and we had married. Um, and I just started the fourth year of a five-year engineering program. It was a uh, Extensive program, I think 152 credit hours, if I remember, um, and, and all of a sudden things started changing inside of me. I was so different than I'd ever been before. Um, God started to create in me a profound and radical change inside me, changing me from a an interest in mechanical design and welding processes to the people business, and this is a people business. This is not a theological business. This is a people business. Some pastors haven't figured that out. No one would have ever guessed that God wanted me to do that. Never. Um, I was an extreme introvert. Extreme. I was so afraid of being recognized. I would sit in the back of the classroom. Always. I would never raise my hand. Never volunteer to answer a question. I might know the answer but I was afraid to raise my hand, answer the question, because there's a minute, you know, percent of a possibility I could be wrong, and then I'd be embarrassed and be ashamed, and so I wouldn't do it. In high school, i had been rejected so often on dates that I was afraid to approach girls. The only reason I met Hopi was because it was a prearranged blind date that a close friend had set up for us. I'm not sure if we knew one another in school that we would have ever dated. I don't know but she, and I have to tell you the story, it was a double date, my friend Jack, we worked out together, said, you want to go with these girls, they're identical twins, mirror image identical twins, hope and faith, and he said, so you want to go? I said, sure, let's go. We got to their house, went to the car, I borrowed my dad's car, because I had a 1956 Plymouth, that wasn't too bad, but the, the color scheme was really bad, it was pink and white, and uh, it looked like Pepto-Bismol on wheels, and so I... <laughs> I, I was not insecure in my masculinity, so it didn't bother me. It was my first car, so I didn't care. So anyway, so I borrowed my dad's car. It was a four-door. And I said, well, I don't know who's who. They dressed identical, looked identical. It was ridiculous. I said, whoever what? Hope he just took a dive for the back seat with Jack. Just right there. So I was left with faith. And, uh, but I didn't matter because I couldn't tell him apart anyway. In fact, halfway through the date, we went to the restroom. I said, Jack, who am I with? I, I have no clue. And uh, he said, I think, I think you're with faith, I think. Anyway, but I figured it out and asked Hopi out after that. But uh, I, was, I was afraid of girls. I was afraid of public speech. It terrified me. In fact, to this date, I've never had a, a public speech course. Um, I've had homiletics, which is preaching, but I, not a public speech course per se. I was not prime pastoral candidate material but there were changes these changes were happening inside me i got so turned on for jesus if there was something happening in church i was there i volunteered for everything i was in vacation bible school i taught a sunday school class i was head of the ushers. I just did everything I could. I never missed anything. I couldn't get enough of the Bible. I, I, I just buried myself in the Bible. I studied and studied. And then I wanted to tell everyone what I had learned. I started seeing myself in the pulp preaching. And that was so not me. I struggled understanding those changes throughout a nine month period. I'd spoken to my father, he'd passed her 27 years. I said, Dad, what's going on? he said son if there's anything else you can do in life and be happy doing it then do that he said, do not surrender to this calling don't do it unless you feel as though you're going to die if you don't and that's what happened in the end of those nine months after not being able to eat or sleep I had no interest in engineering I I had to force myself to study and take test and pass courses I hated it I loved it before I hated it I could even barely function at that stage so one Friday afternoon I walked into the Alpha Omega frat house where I was a member I went into the office shut the door behind me got on my knees and this is extremely vivid to me I prayed a Jacob like prayer I said dear God I don't understand this I don't I have been spending all this time and energy and money in getting an education in engineering. I might add, my parents did not contribute one cent to my college degree. And that's fine. I have no problem. I paid it off. I was fine. But I said, God, it seems, though, you are calling me to be a pastor. And although some people have told me I'm crazy to even consider doing this, and I might be, but it seems that is what you want from me, and I want you to know I'm willing to do that. I will do that. I will pastor, I will preach, I will love people, I will serve the church. But if I do that, please, please bless me. I prayed as Jacob prayed bless me and although it is less apparent here than in our six previous congregations he has blessed me I am here this morning because I made a strategic decision to cooperate with God and the change he was wanting to create in me I don't regret it I've asked Hopi countless times do you regret what we have done and she has said again and again no This is what God wanted. The great missionary explorer, David Livingstone. His last name is sometimes misspelled and mispronounced as Livingstone. It's not. It's Livingstone. He served in Africa as a medical missionary and explorer from 1840 until his death in 1873. Listen to this incident from Livingstone's life that illustrates why we need to cooperate with God and accept the changes he wants to create in us. David Livingstone was anxious to journey into the uncharted regions of central and southern Africa to preach the gospel. I might add, he literally walked across the entire continent. One time he arrived at the edge of a large territory that was ruled by a tribal tribal chieftain. And he was told that according to tradition, the chief would come out to meet him and welcome him but only after an exchange had been made tradition said that the chief could choose any item from Livingstone's personal property and he could keep it for himself no matter what that item might be no matter how valuable that item might be he could keep that item for himself but then the chief would in turn give Livingstone something of his own. Livingstone had only a few possessions with him, but at that encounter, he obediently spread them out all on the ground, his clothes, his books, his watch, and even his goat that provided him with milk. He had chronic stomach problems, and that prevented him from drinking the local water. He relied almost exclusively on goat's milk. This goat was probably his most prized possession. But to his complete shock and disappointment, the chief took his goat. And in return, the chief gave him only a carved stick, shaped like a walking stick. Livingstone tried to hide his disappointment. That wouldn't be a good optic, so he tried to... But he was upset. He was definitely upset that this chieftain had taken his goat... He needed that goat. And afterwards, he admitted that he started to complain to God about what he perceived to be, you know, a, a, a terrible exchange. He now had a useless walking cane. He didn't need a walking cane. I mean, what could a cane do for him compared to a goat that kept him hydrated and well? But then after throwing one of his pity parties, and someone in his group overheard him and said to him, Livingstone, you don't understand. You don't understand what has happened. That's not a walking cane. It's the chief's own personal scepter. And using that scepter, you can gain entrance to every village in this country. The chief has honored you greatly. That man was correct. Because God used that chieftain's cane to open up village after village after village throughout Central Africa and then his successive missionaries came in after him. Wave after wave of conversions occurred. David Livingstone was at first uncooperative with God in part because he didn't understand what God was doing. This was nonsensical to him but once he understood then he started to cooperate and great things happened. But if we understand what God is doing and if we do that's fantastic but if we don't understand and that's probably more often than not. If we don't understand what God is doing, we still should trust Him and cooperate with the changes He wants to make in us. Christian and successful businessmen, now deceased, Max Dupree made this statement. In the end, it is important to remember that we cannot become what we need to be by remaining what we are. We cannot become what we need to be by remaining what we are, so people, let's change. Let's bow our heads, would we? Father, thank you for uh, this lesson from Jacob. Uh, he was a man prior to that match, prior to that change, a man that we would have found offensive, undesirable. But now he's a man that we honor and celebrate and to remember and I pray God that we would we would learn the lesson to change there's not a person in this room who's listened to this message who doesn't need to change we all need change I can't sp- speak for anyone in this room I don't know anyone's heart I don't know their lifestyle I don't really know much but I do know me and I know of areas where I need to change I am determined to change I am in the process of changing and i hope you will help me maintain that change but father help everyone in this room to be introspective to ask ourselves probing questions and uh just to say god wh- what is it you want to do where do you want me to change where am i where am i weak where am i neglectful what what do you want and then determine to do it so father a- and help us to remember that we won't do it on our own strength if we trust you and your strength is enough to help us change if you want us to do something, you will give us all that we need to be able to do that if we just trust you. And I pray we will. Thank you for what we learned. And I really pray that it will make a difference in our lives this week. And I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.